This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. It's me, Stephanie Butnick, joined by my two co-hosts, tablet editor-at-large, Leah Leibovitz. A very happy Shavuos to you. And for the first time ever, our newest co-host, Joshua Molina. Pressure's on. It's real. It's real, people. It's real. Um, If we don't like what you say, we're just going to kick you out of the room. I'm comfortable with that. (laughs) Uh, our Jew of the Week this week. Jews kicking other Jews out for not liking what they said. That has never happened <laughs> in the history of our people. You know what they say? Three Jews. Oh, wait. Is that how it goes? Two opinions? No, that's not it. <laughs> Three Jews, one bank. <laughs> Three Jews, one, one podcast. Laser. And this week, one Jew of the Week and one Gentile of the Week, as we do every episode. Our Jew of the Week is Aaron Sedman. He's the executive producer of the Netflix show We Cannot Stop Watching, Jewish Matchmaking, and its predecessor, Indian Matchmaking. And our Gentile of the Week, we're going close to home for this one, is the actor Aaron Neal. He's currently appearing in Leopoldstadt on Broadway. And more importantly, for our purposes, he shares a dressing room with our own Joshua Molina. He is my roommate and friend. (laughs) I, by the way, love how you said it with like, this perfect Viennese diction, like Leopoldstadt. That's how I, would, I would have gone Leopoldstadt. Well, okay, this I've is heard America, Josh damn say it. Leopoldstadt. I trained Stephanie to say Leopoldstadt. <laughs> I've also uh, noticed that I say my own character's name differently from the rest of the cast. So, so how do you say it? So, uh, Hermann Merz, and I hear a lot of Hermann. I say Hermann. Oh. Uh, so I might be wrong. So before we get to today's show, I want to like officially welcome you Thank here. Thank you. Thank you. I wore my hat. I know. That's really nice. I wore the shirt yesterday. I'm swagging out. Um, Welcome to the Bagel Dome. Yeah. How has it been so far? We announced you last week. The people seem to be excited. Where yes, I, wa- I would say, having scoured social media for any response, <laughs> I've been largely welcomed, which I appreciate. But I was also, I would say, I met with pleasure, not displeasure, to see some people uh, not happy. <laughs> <laughs> but not happy from both sides. One tweet I saw suggested that it is an impossibility that a board member of Americans for Peace Now, which I am proudly, would do anything with tablet. <laughs> And then on the other side, somebody said, why would an anti-Israel person like Joshua Molina join this podcast? It's like Schrodinger's Jew, right? You both love Israel and you hate Israel. And you're as long as you're in this box, it's impossible to figure wait, out wait, yeah. which wait. one it is. I will say for the record, I love Israel. Schrodinger's. Can we go back to that? Yeah. Is that exactly? Schrodinger's? Schrodinger's. Sometimes Schrodinger's. the Israeli accent comes out. Is it Kat or Kate? Out. It's caught. Sometimes um, you can't hear me over my Israeli Yeah, accent. sometimes Liel, like who has been here for a hundred years, Maze. says a word that Maze. is so... Schrodinger. Yes, <laughs> Again, exactly. this is America. It's Schrodinger. <laughs> Schrodinger. <laughs> not, um, not with your fancy Mitteleuropa pronunciation. I like this because, you know, our Facebook group has been trying to figure out like who it was ever since we sort of said that we were getting a new co-host. And like some people guessed you, actually. Yeah, I'm not sure how. And <laughs> it's just sort of been fun to see people's People are very excited in our Facebook group. Like I'm people feel to connected to you. Well, to be to be perfectly honest, ChatGPT also guessed you. That's true. We asked ChatGPT who who should be who should be. I'm and expecting like, ChatGPT to replace me within weeks. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> and all of us. Sure. Um, no, but can we get back to this thing? Because like very few things give me more joy than like. He is not right wing enough. He is too right wing. He is so on the left. He is not enough on the left. You know, I've been in this game for a moment now. And yet I can't get over the like inanity of it all, like the stupidity of affixing these labels and being like, oh, I can't believe this person's now part of the conversation. It's like the opposite of what everything Judaism is about. It's like literally we have minion every morning. So we sit 
with 10 people with the understanding that we really despise at least six of them. That's the whole point <laughs> of the religion. Like, oh, you again. I have to see you again. It's just, is that yeah. what community But you're really welcome is? in my minion. That's, right. the, that, that's that, the underlying fundamental point. Absolutely. That is what community really is. <laughs> Talking to people who have opinions that drive you insane. Yeah. By the way, I'm sure that I'm guilty myself often of ghettoizing people by their political stances or something. So it's, I, I include myself in being guilty of this at times. The interesting thing about this show, I would say, so we started it like eight years ago, and we sort of thought it would be like a fun Jewish chat show, right? Like we would talk about silly things. And then as it went on, it sort of became, we realized people wanted more, right? So we were like, let's actually talk about what a holiday is about. Let's talk about different concepts. Let's sort of like try to really not just be surface level, kitschy Jewish stuff. So we sort of deepened it in that way. But then it sort of really became a place where people disagree with each other. And I totally didn't expect that, but it is sort of a beautiful thing. And I've decided that the least interesting podcasts to listen to are the kinds where everyone agrees all the time. And I'm like, why are you doing this show? Unless, unless they agree on really crazy shit. Unless it's like a conspiracy <laughs> theory podcast. Be like, then no, it becomes all, interesting again. Yeah. Right. It'll be like, oh, yeah, that, but say more. I just think it's so funny and I'm not going to name names, but it's like, oh, I don't do. actually want to listen to a show where I know exactly what everyone's going to say on everything. And like, I actually like the idea that we're all coming to this with like different experiences and different opinions on things. Like, yeah, I feel like that's a big part of why I said yes when you asked me to join you is I want more. And I probably live to some extent in an echo chamber. And so I'm, I'm excited to be disagreed with. I want to talk. I'll, I'll do my best. I, I suspect <laughs> you'll come through. I believe in you. No, that's, that's my role here. Um, you know, I think it's funny because I've enjoyed your Twitter so much especially in this past week, like you're <laughs> really you. in there. Yeah. And oh, yeah. It, but people are constantly telling me not to uh, <laughs> don't go to their level. No, I will. Go, I take the down elevator right to their level. But like you see people say mean things about you all the time. Not yes. mean. But no, like, mean. <laughs> I mean, not entirely mean. I would say majority positive. Most people who have something to say, say something nice. But plenty of people, especially in social media, anonymity that that offers, say horrible things. I'd like it for some reason. <laughs> I think it's because I'm an actor. And so I've had to develop rhino-like skin for, you know, 30 years. I never really thought about that. Like you do something and then people right away tell you in a review whether yeah. it's good or not. Yes, that is and true. And not only that, then you have to go and do it publicly. Again? again, like, if I write something and you didn't like my book, I don't have to go out tomorrow and write in front of you. I say, oh, well, you know, this person didn't like my book, whatever. It must be some other people who did. But for you, <laughs> tomorrow's not today. Like, yeah. you're, you're still there. That's true. My feeling is if you're going <laughs> to... If you're going to enjoy the good things people are saying, you have to at least interact with the bad things people are saying. If you give value to one side, you have to give value to the other. I have been admonished before not to bring bad reviews to the set of a TV show that I'm on and read them aloud. Which, which, which <laughs> that not all actors are amused by that. Yes. <laughs> what is something that someone could say about you or a character that like would actually hurt your feelings? Uh, oh, lots of things. I mean, I don't want people to say I'm a bad actor. <laughs> And uh, people often do. People are like, Will Bailey, like people actually say yeah, like, like that's you were horrible. West Wing. My Twitter bio is I ruined the West Wing. Not because <laughs> I myself believe that to be the case, but I would like to acknowledge that there are a fair number of people who feel that way. And I, you're, you are seen by me <laughs> and I am hurt, but I acknowledge a it. A theory of history by which you <laughs> indeed. Yeah, right. 
Actually, isn't the bio high? I ruined the West Wing. Yes. Well, I wanted to open with a uh, more, uh, and, you know, every, not, all are welcome. Not not just a television show. The West Wing as as an institution of government. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's unclear what people mean. <laughs> whether, <laughs> it, it may have nothing to do with the television series. <laughs> I think this is going to be a lot of fun. I do, too. I'm excited for people to tell me how bad I am as a co-host. And the nice thing about hosting a Jewish podcast, which, of course, you know, um, you formerly hosted Chutzpah, an amazing show. People write in. And like, you don't need to tell Jews to tell you how what they right. think of your show. Like, it's great that people feel connected to something and moved by it. And they say nice things. And like, there is this community of people who listen to the show. And then people will call you on stuff. Um, yeah. they, they will keep they will keep us accountable. I like that. And I will read everything. I have plenty of free time <laughs> as an actor who is sometimes employed. Plenty of free time to read. I may not respond to everything, but I will I will read everything. Oh, this is That's part of uh, Kahal. I'm here to be part of a community. You need not like me to be part of that community. <laughs> that is amazing. And I'm very excited. Speaking of incredibly awkward public performances, can I, can I share... <laughs> something with you? Because again, I, I speak in public, but sometimes there are limitations. And, and one of those I experienced this Friday. So I get a call from Rabbi Chaim Alevsky of the Chabad of the West Side, one of the most incredible, righteous human beings in world history. And he says, you know, it's almost Shavuot. We're putting together this amazing event. We're going to bring Shuk Machni Yehuda, the famous Jerusalem market, to the Upper West Side. We bought... <laughs> We bought chocolate and chalva and olives and, you know, there'll be all kinds of things. And um, then we're having a Shabbat dinner and, and we want you to say a few words for Yom Yerushalayim, uh, which was last week. It was the day in which we celebrate the reunification of Jerusalem during the Six-Day War in 1967. Now, here's the thing. I was born in Tel Aviv. And as any person born in Tel Aviv knows, we carry a genetic material that makes us kind of like uniquely allergic to anything to do with Jerusalem. It's holy, mm. it's great, it's beautiful. All these things are true. <laughs> However, it is a very difficult city for us to handle. I've gone on coast-to-coast -coast trips with less preparation than I do for the 40-minute drive from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, <laughs> which takes like four days of like intense contemplation. And like, where would I park the car? It's like as soon as we cross the like Jerusalem city line, like we no longer speak the language and like we don't know how like parking works. And so I was like, uh, what do I say? But Figured, I love this guy so much. He's such a righteous man. Okay, I'm going to do it. And I'm thinking I'm giving a speech at a Shabbat dinner, meaning I'm going to stand up. It's going to be a nice little hall in the shul where I go to. It's fine. I know it. I'm comfortable. I'm going to say a few words, you know, prep some Rambam, prep some Rashi. I have my little, you know, talking points. And we go to the Shuk. And the Shuk is right on the corner of 97th and Amsterdam. And it's amazing. People are coming, people from all of the community. I'm like, this is so beautiful. And like, my heart is really swelling. And then Rabbi Chaim said, okay, well, you're up. Here's the microphone. I was like, but but this is the corner of 97th and Amsterdam. Uh, and uh, nothing nothing in my skill set prepares me to do this thing. He's like, well, you know, just go ahead. Just uh, talk loudly. And I'm standing there in this like unbelievably severe. Like there are definitely people listening quite a lot. But there's also a lot of like New York City life happening around me. And I'm saying like, our love for Jerusalem is strong. Kind of like the stream coming out of this gentleman urinating like literally wow. across the street as I'm quoting Rampam. It's like, this is insane. And like rats running all over the place. It was this kind of moment of bringing out the amazing grit that is Chabad 
the ability to just stand up in the middle of the street and do things like ask people, excuse me, are you Jewish? You'd be like, no, no, I'm, I'm going to talk excuse to you me, about Excuse me, are Jewish you peeing? Life. Yeah, excuse <laughs> me. Are you, is that a rat or like… I noticed that you're yeah. Jewish. <laughs> uh, it, it was intense. So happy Yom Yerushalayim to all who observe. Wow. I have nothing to top that except I've been seeing something lately around sort of that same area because I live also on the Upper West Side, the other other promised land after Israel. And Miami. Miami Beach, <laughs> maybe Long Island, yeah. Upper West Side. So I feel like this thing keeps happening. I want to say it here to like confirm whether it's real. There's this truck that I keep seeing. It just has Mensch on it. It's like a company called Mensch. And then I was walking across the street and <laughs> these guys are wearing shirts that say like Schlepper's moving. Sure. And I was like, what? happening. Does everyone just need like a Yiddish phrase? Is that like a new trend? Like schleppers. I right. mean, these are all old companies, obviously, but it's like, what do I want this to be? Do I want these to be like Jewy companies? And they were like, we're going to call it schleppers because right. we're schleppers. Or is or it someone being like, being like, like some, some VC being like, yeah, oh, what's like a good name? Like or real... we're going to give you a reasonable price because we're mentions. Exactly. Um, or we're cheap because we're like, it, it could go <laughs> both ways. And it's kind of like when you see someone being like, and I was schwitzing and I'm like, you are a wasp. You cannot. Like, I kind of feel <laughs> oh, like you shouldn't say you. that. I kind of like it. Appropriate away. Oh, I love it. <laughs> it makes me feel so, especially if it's like really like the other day I heard like a very Southern gentleman of, of a certain kind of socioeconomic Vintage. standing. He was watching some Ibsen plays. Like, it just left me feeling, you know, verklempt. <laughs> I was like, I'm, I'm even going to forgive the, you know, mispronunciation, but 100% yes. You're welcome. It's yours. I don't know. I feel like, I don't want to say we should like get a royalty, but like we should get huh. a cultural royalty every time anyone's like using Yiddish phrases with no connection to like a Hug roots. a Jew if you're going to do that. Yeah. <laughs> Each time. Yeah, I like that. You do that. That's a good campaign. Well, but, but, then, but, then, but then we have to charge for, you know, monotheism as well. Like it's, <laughs> if you believe in one God, send us a check for $18. <laughs> Every time. Yeah. Every time. The thing that I really want, of course, is the draft. I want to trade some away and I want to get some. So you want to trade Jews and get Gentiles? I, I, I would like to trade Barbara Streisand for Weird Al Yankovic. Oh, again with Barbara Streisand. Yep. Streisand, wow. Or whoever. I just want Weird Al. Because I feel it's like it's just not right. But don't right. we basically have him? No, we don't. It needs to be official. Because everyone to... just assumes Weird Al Yankovic That's true. is Correct. Jewish. He needs to play for the team. He needs to put on the jersey. Let's let's get him on and, the show and, and talk you know, to him. Let's be honest. It. Also, it'd be kind of fun to trade a bunch of people away. And, and we can't trade away Bernie Madoff. You have to go right to Barbara's. I know. Present. It's like the real crime no against. Well, that's I mean, fair if, enough. If let's we're see. picking dead Jews. There are plenty of others. You're right. Yeah. No, no, you're right. Should be alive. But I think I like this. Maybe we could set up who our draft would be and we can all get someone. Yeah, I might trade out bad for the Jews, yeah. import good for the Jews. Yeah, bad for the Jews. Also, I feel like Jews who have already kind of done their bit. Like, for example, regardless of what you think about him, Woody Allen, who, by the way, yesterday, I don't know if, did you read this page six amazing thing? Yesterday, eighty-seven-year-old Woody Allen is sitting in a restaurant in the Upper East Side with his friend, whose name is Stein, and Stein orders pork. The pork gets lodged. In Stein's throat. And Woody Allen jumps across the table, gives him the Heimlich maneuver, <laughs> and saves his life like a fucking Woody Allen character. Wow, no, I missed that story. And I myself have successfully Heimlich a fellow Jew. Wow, have who you? was it? Yeah, Aaron Sorkin. Hence my career. Wow. Yeah. This explains a lot. Yeah. This explains yeah. a lot. But to those who think I can't act, there's your there's some grist for your mill. Wow. So you wow. Should, wow. Sorry, I didn't mean to hijack no, this the story and make it about me. But so I did. did. Do you okay? You resuscitated it. It's did fine. You, we're back. Were you 
taught them yeah, what's, or did yeah. you just look at those like posters? That's exactly and- right. I had, I had a vague sense of seeing a poster in the back of a restaurant and I cracked a couple of his ribs. <gasps> Which is what you're supposed to do, right? Well, I mean, it wasn't my intention, <laughs> but it, it can, I understand it can be a, the byproduct of it's successful, like successful Heimlichen. Yeah. And then, did something happen in the moment right after? Um, many like- things happened. First, Aaron decided to continue to bowl because it was the Broadway bowling league. <laughs> and he did like the Fred Flintstone thing where he... <laughs> released the ball and fell on his back. And then he said, I think I need to go home. Yeah. And someone else got sick just from having observed what happened. <laughs> it was a, a lot of very of sensitive that. souls at this particular incident. Oh, I wow. feel like, yeah. wow, you, this is good. He did later thank me that because he got an extension on a writing deadline because his ribs are cracked. So it was kind of a twofer. Wow. So we have like a lot of, there's like pop culture ripple See, effects is, of all right. of these. This, exactly. is, this is one thing that always scared me. Like I really that if I'll be in the situation, I will just cause way more harm than good. Like, yeah, I'll get that little pretzel but, or whatever out of your throat. Well, now I have an intense sensitivity to anybody even clearing their throat. <laughs> like, I mean, if you clear your throat a second time, I'm going to crack your ribs. <laughs> I will crack your ribs. Were there people who didn't rush to help? And, yeah, look and at let me say now. that I think it's a rare instance in which I re- responded to any kind of crisis with a plum. I don't, that's not my, <laughs> I'm not like a hero type. We actually spent quite a while thinking he was doing choking shtick. Like he was trying to make <gasps> oh. us laugh and we laughed and pointed. And then his eyes started to bug out and he, thought, and he fell over. <gasps> and you're like, I think this is real. As so I was just maybe closest by. This is Someone else would have done it had I not. Oh, please. You're a hero. You're yeah, a hero. I really am. You're so, uh, a hero. Uh, this, by the way, is exactly how Stalin died. I don't know if you know the story, but like he was like dying for a very long time. No one was rushing to his well, He's known for his shtick. I think the comedian Dick Sean died on stage similarly. Really? Because they thought he was doing a bit. Stalin, like, Dick Sean. Yeah. Aaron Sorkin. Two, 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 three, three. <laughs> and <very> scene. <laughs> we, we often confuse them. News of the Jews. Oh, yeah. TJ News of the Jews. Should we discuss news of Jews yeah, who are not yes, us? Yeah, news of Jews who are not us or Aaron Sorkin or Stalin, I guess. Liel, can you give us an update on Eurovision, your favorite annual? The greatest tradition. So the Eurovision, to those who live in the part literally designated as rest of world in the Eurovision voting <laughs> process. Is that uh, us? That's America? That is basically only us because in the Eurovision, Australia participates. Sure. <laughs> Part of Europe. Why not? It is a song contest slash war slash, you know, diplomatic exercise slash peace negotiations. It is an amazing annual competition. <clears throat> Sorry. Do you need me? Yeah. <laughs> I will <laughs> leap across the table. <laughs> uh, it is an annual contest that launched the career of ABBA. I believe also, I want to say not Celine Dion, but a, a, a bunch of people of that caliber. Celine Dion, Euro... Canadian, part of Europe, uh, of course. Sure. I mean, come on, it's, it's, it's all good. Um, <laughs> Israel sent its secret weapon. It sent Noah Kirel, who's like the Dua Lipa, Demi Lovato, kind of biggest pop star, uh, with a song, which is just delightfully ridiculous, called The Unicorn. I don't know, do you know The Unicorn? It's a very good uh, song. To try and capture again the seat previously held by such great artists like Netta, like Dana International, all the recent stars of Israeli Eurovision magnificence. But while Noah Kirel came in third, she still managed to spark an international incident 
when she said, and the quote is unbelievable, and the response is even more unbelievable. So she said, as someone whose entire family died in the Holocaust, it was very heartwarming that Poland gave us 12 points. There's a voting process and every country gives oh, We've points. all seen the Will Ferrell and, movie. Right. <laughs> and 12 points, the 12 points is the most you could get. So she said, all my family died in the Holocaust, but hey, kind of makes up for it because Poland gave us 12 points, which is amazing on its own. Right, right. But then the Polish government yes. came and said, this is highly offensive. The people who killed your ancestors were the Germans. Why are you <laughs> making these hurtful jokes? You should really come and visit us. It's just, it's I, by the incredible. way, I have to say that Poland does spend a lot of its time and energy saying, hey, the Germans, <laughs> the Nazis did the Holocaust. And it, they like, they do protest a little too much. I get I it. Cause like, yeah, they, they could have let this one go into yeah, the Yeah, like they don't want Polish concentration camps because what we really mean is concentration camps in Poland. But they go like a, like a little too, like I, a little too sensitive I'm, about I'm, it. I'm, I'm team Warsaw all the way. Huh. I mean, it's, yeah, look, I mean, I think the incredible thing is that most people don't realize. Poland had, has more righteous among the nations than all other European nations combined. No one did. I'm not doubting that. I think, you know, like in Poland, the, the punishment for hiding Jews was like more severe. Like the idea was this was a place where people were much more interconnected than other countries. And so it is much more complicated. It is kind of funny. I didn't really see today going here, but I guess we have to talk to, about the Holocaust, you know, at least, you know. It's, it's oh, in, do less. It's, it's in the context. It, it is my first episode. <laughs> it is, we haven't even gotten to the part about the play that you're in. Uh, but in a way, Germany has been able to like excise, be like, that was then. Those people were bad. We right. are doing all of this rehabilitation and museums and we, monuments. We pay the money. Yeah, we give Here's you your a submarine money. Israel and a few Mercedes taxi cabs, Jews, and we're good, right? We give the Jews we their cool? money. But Poland actually is much more complicated because, I don't know, it's murkier. Though they I could, do they say, could give us the that was then a little bit more. Yes, they, they could. Us, yeah, that would be nice. Yeah. Eurovision, but countries that had concentration camps in them. Which would make for a much funnier competition. Although I think like the Norwegians, the Danes, the Swedes, like the Scandinavians are where the competition really gets kind of interesting. Although this year, I got to say a little bit suspicious because Sweden just happened to win when next year is the 50th anniversary of ABBA launching their career at the Eurovision. I don't the know. fix is in. Oh, wait. So then this conspiracy. means because next year it'll be in Sweden. Yeah, because oh, they want well. the big like... So this is sort of Benny like the plot Bjorn of Pitch Perfect 3 at this point, right? Right, With Demi Lovato, who I think that's why I said her name earlier, because she's on the brain. It's incredible because you get to vote if you pay money. And so my, my, my nine-year-old was sitting there completely riveted. He's a huge fan. And Hudson's like, we got to vote for Israel, Dad. It's like, I'm not fucking paying $20. $20 is, is that like what it is? Is that what it goes for? Yeah. It's like, insane. I'm not paying $20 to vote for Israel. It's like, don't you love Israel? $20 worth. It's like, fuck, I can't send you and to a Jewish day school rate? and then say, no, okay, fine, I do this. So we do this. And then three minutes later, we get a call from the bank's fraud protection department. <laughs> Did you just vote for Israel? <laughs> Did you just buy like nine euros or whatever, the 11 euros worth of, I was like, yes, yes, I did. I'm not proud. It was like, for a, you like that <laughs> Right. You voted for this, not for the Finns? Well, I guess we'll have to wait until next year to continue talking about Eurovision. I think this is the end of our conversations for this year, but I'm sure we'll have a lot to Indeed. discuss. I, I want to get to what is probably my favorite news of the Jews mm -hmm. item in forever. And Joshua, I think this is like a good welcome for you to the show because yes. this is like a real... <laughs> 
This is perfect. Okay, this is from the forward. Jews are genetically prone to stomach problems. Breaking news. <laughs> Scientists oh my Lord. are starting to understand Breaking why. wind. Researchers found eight <laughs> genetic variations unique to Ashkenazi Jews that lead to diseases like Crohn's and colitis. Okay, so this is from the article in the forward. The team analyzed the genetics of 1,734 Ashkenazi Jews with IBD, irritable bowel disease, and... She says, like, she's never heard of it. I think it's disease. And compare them to a control group of 2,719 <laughs> who did not have the disease. They found 10 genes with variations linked to the disease. While two were previously known in the general population, eight of them were new and unique to Ashkenazis. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my. Oh, don't I know it? Are you among the, uh, the sufferers? I'm intolerant, generally. <laughs> <laughs> and that would include lactose, I think. Mm. I feel like, first of all, we need the Sephardi take on this. Unfortunately, in this room, I, I oh, think— Oh, we're going to need the Sephardi take often, I think. Yes, do yes. We have, do we have a go-to? They're actually just like chugging Sephardi. milk in the, you know, out there. Or, right. or, or, or the in front take. of the, <laughs> yeah, their Ashkenazi is, friends. It's, it's just a laugh track. It's just people going like, ah, that's adorable. <laughs> just eating their legumes on your, Passover. Your food is disgusting and you can't process it. I don't know. What do, we, what do we make of a headline like this? This is where our experiences kind of, you know, diverge. Because I'm Middle Eastern. I suffer from none of this. And I think in Israel, I don't know that this is hashtag science, but I think the actual propensity for these diseases, even among Ashkenazis, is much lower. Because we've kind of blended into, we've consumed enough cumin or whatever it is, you know, to kind of, kind of bring like it down. Like you guys are just like fully like 90% chickpea at this point. Yeah, exactly. Huh. It's, it's not, you know, lactose intolerance, all this shit. It's like not a thing in Israel. Is there that much milk in Israel or you just get bamba? It's a lot of milk in Israel. Really? Oh, mil- the milk. There's milk and the honey, yeah. I guess. That's right. And we eat the milky. You know the milky? It's very good. What's you know that? that? You know the milky? I do not. <laughs> the milky is like the greatest treat that every Israeli kid eats. It's like a little cup. It's chocolate pudding in the bottom and it's ripped cream up top. Sold. And yeah, it sounds- literally oh, the kind of psychological test that you could administer to a person is how they would eat it. Because if they eat the whipped cream first mm-hmm. and then the chocolate pudding, then they're not very good at, it's like the marshmallow test, basically. They're not very good at like, you know, delaying satisfaction. If they eat the chocolate pudding from the bottom and save the whipped cream, they're solid types. How do you? And if they mix it all together, they're complete psychopaths that should be avoided. My dad would do well on that test. He's the, he will eat the entire yellow cake just so he can have a serving of frosting on his own. That's exactly dessert. That's the correct measure. Could we get milkies like in here in the United States? There used to be, and now there is no more. Alas. To try to make you homemade. I would milky. love a homemade milky. So I don't know. I guess it's hard because I feel like the stereotype of the like nebishy Woody Allen Jew is that we're like weak and the stomach thing kind of just like plays into, I feel like, these like kind of pathetic stereotypes. And so I don't like to see it confirmed by science. By science, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Look, we are what we are. Pop, I like, I am what I am. And you know, you're right. It's not, it's not great for the Jews, but it, if it's, Science, it's science. You actually pointed us to, like, the greatest tweet I've ever seen on this topic. Yes. Well, I think the article suggested that this topic has been the subject of many, many bad jokes. And I felt it important to point out that there's at least one incredibly great joke, I think, made by Sarah Silverman. I'll name drop a friend of mine. And she (laughs) tweeted a sign that says, persons currently experiencing or having experienced diarrhea within the previous 14 days shall not be allowed to enter the pool water. To which she added, this pool is basically <laughs> saying, no Jews allowed. Hold <laughs> 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 
are excited to announce Tablet's first ever essay competition, First Personal. Our editors are looking for previously unpublished work by writers living in North America who have never written for Tablet before. They are seeking submissions on the theme of belonging. Where do you feel at home or no longer at home, physically, spiritually, or culturally? How do you find community or a sense that you're a part of something larger than yourself? Are there places where you feel a sense of belonging or alienation or both? Tablet is seeking personal essays about your life and your experiences and how your thoughts and feelings have evolved over time. Tablet editors will review all submissions and choose their favorite five, which they will edit with the writers. The authors of those five pieces will be brought to New York City to read their story in front of a live audience. A guest judge will then select the winner. The winning essay will be published in Tablet and the winner will receive $500. For more information and to submit your essay, please visit tabletmag.com slash essay contest. Our Chew of the Week is Aaron Sedman. He's the executive producer of the show. We are completely, utterly, and absolutely obsessed with Jewish matchmaking. He also made its predecessor, Indian matchmaking. We are so excited to have him on the show. Aaron, welcome to Unorthodox. Thank you for being our Jew of the Week. Thank you for having me. How uncomfortable does that designation make you? I used to joke growing up that I was involved in so many different Jewish organizations that that I might one day win the designation of Jew of the Year. But somehow Jew of the Week does feel uh, more uncomfortable. Ba- baby steps, man. Like, yeah, we're working towards it. 51 more appearances <laughs> and you will be the Jew of the Year. Brick by brick. So tell us about Jewish Matt. I mean, for someone who's never watched the show, never watched Indian matchmaking, tell us a little bit about this, this genre of show that you've you've been so involved with. I got a phone call from Netflix and they asked if I could come up with a unscripted television format that somehow took that ancient tradition, that 2,500 year old tradition of Indian matchmaking. And could I translate that into a sort of popular entertainment television format? When you get this call from Netflix is the next thought that you're having, like, this is great. I'll totally do it because the Jews are clearly in the pipeline? I actually didn't, you know, we were in the editing room locking picture on Indian matchmaking. And I remember turning to the showrunner and saying, man, this, I think this is a really good show. Too bad no one's going to see it. Because I didn't really think that anyone would tune into a show about Indian matchmaking, let alone Jewish matchmaking. But something about that show and the power of Netflix's platform and launching in the middle of COVID with everybody trapped in their houses. And that really gave life to Indian matchmaking. And from there, it was, okay, what are other traditions that have engaged in matchmaking or arranged marriages? And we went and looked into many cultures and reached out to many matchmakers across many different countries. But there was always this fervor and intense interest in Jewish matchmaking specifically, both by us, the production company and Netflix. So even though we looked at many different cultures, the conversation always came back to the Jews. And it's a tradition, if I'm not mistaken, that's even older than Indian matchmaking. So it seemed like we could do something authentic and real in that space. My name is Aliza Ben Shalom, and I am a matchmaker and dating coach. Why are you uh, looking for a matchmaker? I don't want to have to explain to her why Curb Your Enthusiasm is funny. (laughs) 
it's very important to me. And the passion is fiery. We're not talking about that part. <laughs> I am on this matchmaking mission. I have a guy that I'd like to introduce you to. You have a guy, okay. <laughs> the matchmaking I strictly do with the Jewish community where I have helped over 200 couples to get to the chuppah. And when you decided to embark on this endeavor, how did you find Aliza Ben Shalom, who's a breakout star? She is incredible. She is a force. We found her through casting. She really stood out. You know, I grew up conservative and Aliza grew up not orthodox. She grew up more like I did and then became orthodox later in life. And so she grew up around Jews like me and she knew all kinds of Jews of all kinds of denominations and religiosity. And yet she's orthodox. And so I think she was uniquely situated to understand secular Jews, Reformed Jews, all the way to the more strict sort of orthodox community. And so her ability to relate across so many different kinds of Jews is part of what I think made her really special. If our listeners haven't yet seen this masterpiece, now is the time to pause quickly, go watch all eight episodes of season one, come back <laughs> to this part of the interview and hear Aaron's answer when I ask him, Aaron, what the fuck is wrong with Jewish guys? With very few exceptions, a bunch of the dudes on the show are just like unbelievably maddening, to say the least. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> tough question. It's so funny because when we were in post and I started watching Ori, the L.A. Israeli, <laughs> I was really unsettled about including him <laughs> And including him so early in the show, my, my first instinct was, oh, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if we can put him on television. And my second instinct was, if we put him on television, we got to bury him towards the end of the series. If I'm going to present you with an amazing girl, personality, Hebrew speaking, da, 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 but she doesn't have blue eyes, and for sure you're going to say no on that, then to be honest, I'm only going to look for a blue-eyed girl. Every other girl in the world I'm not going to look for. I'm not ashamed of it. I, I, I'm not um, judging you on no. it. I'm saying for me, I need criteria okay. to know what to look for. It rules out anybody with brown eyes and Hebrew Perfect. speaking also, yes. yes. She has to speak Hebrew. It's, it's who I am. Right. So I feel like I'm not myself with somebody that doesn't speak Hebrew. I got it. From there, I think, I think it's, it's a good start. My colleagues smartly persuaded me that no, people will have strong feelings about Ori. And so we ought to have someone in there for them to have a strong emotional reaction to. And so let's leave him exactly where he is. And I do think that was the right decision. But yeah, it's, you know, as a, as a Jewish male who <laughs> has been on the dating scene, um, it was at times personally frustrating. But I, I think overall, there's some very nice young men on the show who, who do reflect well on, on the community. You know, there's something so interesting that happens as the series goes on, which is basically at the beginning, we see a lot of people being like, I haven't found anyone. I'm turning to a matchmaker. I'm going old fashioned. I'm getting off the apps. But then sort of midway into the series, we meet Faye, who is uh, an Orthodox woman for whom matchmaking is actually part of her modern dating life, right? Like her mother is there in the room with her. She's looking at shidduch resumes. I would call myself very Orthodox. Um, I think that people think that that means Hasidish, which I don't identify with, but the best word to say like what type of Orthodox I am is from. And I know that that's like a tricky word because it's like, what's from? But that's kind of the word we use. <laughs> I feel like that in that moment, the show went from being sort of like a really fun romp, right? And through like dating to basically 
an argument for a more traditional style of dating, which I never thought I would say. That's just dating. I mean, anyone who came with any measure, I don't want to call it religiosity, but anyone who really felt connected to some kind of Jewish life, observance, practice, seemed just like a more grounded, settled human being. Is, is that fair to say? Faye is amazing. I, I thought in my mind when we were putting this show together that we would have mostly orthodox singles looking for marriage and that we would only document those that are authentically engaged in the process. And as it turns out, the orthodox community isn't the, the easiest to persuade to go on to, to come on a, your Netflix show. <laughs> yeah. And so that was a real challenge. But what we found in the variety and the mix of singles who do come on the show, and this is true of Indian matchmaking, everyone has dating app fatigue. There's this hunger, there's this yearning for someone to custom tailor your dating experience to your specific needs and desires, who has only sort of your interest at heart and will bespoke come up with potential matches. And so I think all of the daters, so to speak, on Jewish matchmaking found that to be refreshing and really loved Eliza. Faye coming onto the show was significant because it was um, an eye into a community that does engage in this practice quite seriously. And we were able to follow along their thought process. And I think that was educational and enlightening, but also entertaining. I think secular Jews don't always view the Orthodox in this sort of three-dimensional and complex way, but they are. They're just like the rest of Jews. That was incredibly refreshing. I think Shia's story as well. I think Shia meeting with his rabbi was a scene that was so, so important to be able to capture on camera because those conversations are happening and they are discussing things like that and that... I think that's as eye-opening for Jews as it is for Gentiles, quite frankly. In two of these cases, very differently, religiosity ultimately breaks the couple up without giving, you know, any spoilers away. So were you expecting that dynamic to be something that would be sort of broached on the show? Not in the way that it came out, to be totally honest with you. I suspected that Sfaradim and Ashkenazim might have trouble clicking I did not think within the Orthodox community there would be a situation where, you know, one of the singles would be too religious for another of the singles, or they wouldn't be at the same sort of, quote, spiritual level. I didn't anticipate that. I found that fascinating. I mean, that becomes the crux of that story in particular. But I did not, I, I, I was more expecting the differences to play out culturally and ethnically and less so religiously. And you're right, it, it is present in, in a couple of the stories. Was that something as you approach, as you look at these young people at, at such a awkward moment of actually trying to find a spouse to spend life with, is that something that you had in mind, a sort of aspiration to be as complex as the genre would allow? We try very hard to tell authentic stories in an honest and authentic manner. And I recognize that not all of my colleagues in unscripted television necessarily take that approach, if that's what you're insinuating. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> but our company does. You know, Indian matchmaking was definitely a reflection of that. You know, the goal there was to document this very old tradition and, and to do so honestly. 
with people, quite frankly, that did not have their hands up to be on a television show. And so Jewish matchmaking, it was important to have that same approach. We do really care about how the people on the show are portrayed. And if you do your homework and you find interesting people who are genuinely looking for love, who have complex stories, who are complex individuals, and then you produce it with that, with quality being your North Star, you're going to do better than most. That said, our production company is run by myself and my partner, Eli Holzman. Both of us are Jewish. And yet we didn't feel totally comfortable that we wouldn't screw up somehow a show about Jewish matchmaking. And I was particularly nervous about that, thinking of my mother, of course, the entire time. <laughs> I was almost making this show for an audience of one and and was was lost a lot of sleep over it in the weeks and months leading up to the premiere. But in an effort to avoid stepping on a cultural landmine, we hired an orthodox consultant, if you will, that was recommended to us by Elisa. And that was, you know, two slightly more secular Jews saying, hey, we better not screw this up for our entire community. So we we, we made sure to surround ourselves with, with people that would help us avoid a disaster. What was that person's input like? That person's input was really helpful, especially when it came to specific traditions and phrases and you know, what people mean when they say a certain thing isn't isn't always exactly what you think. And so there's a bit of translating going on, if you will. And we had her watch Rough Cuts, but she also helped us during the casting phase. She helped us convince someone like Faye to appear on the show in the first place because she's of that community. And so it was important to have those co-signers, if that makes sense. Sure. So the most important question is, what did your mother think of the show? Obviously, as my Jewish mother, she's my number one fan of every TV show that I make. You know, she thought, for example, the story of Pamela, who has Tourette's. She said, oh, it's so important that you included that. There's a lid for every pot. You know, she would hmm. say things like that to me uh, uh, about the series. And so I knew that she was engaged and I knew that she was going to she was going to support it enough that I could show my face at next Passover Seder. And speaking of next year, what is the next? Like, Flavor. Yeah. Who are we? Where are we going next? What culture are we are we diving into? And when do we have season two of Jewish Matchmaking? <laughs> if we do more in the matchmaking space, we've set the bar high for ourselves. And we would want that to, again, be a culture that really engages in the practice that's different than Indian matchmaking or Jewish matchmaking and and where we can tell those authentic stories. So I don't, you know, that 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 bar is high and we'll see how that plays out. Season two of Jewish matchmaking is probably going to be our focus first and foremost. And so hopefully your listeners who have not seen the show will go watch the show and tell their friends to watch the show and will tell their non-Jewish friends to watch the show. I have found the the reaction from non-Jews to, to be almost more interesting than those within our community. What, what do the Gentiles say? Well, my mother-in-law, who's Taiwanese-American, so she's still learning about the Jewish culture and she learned more from watching the show than any of the conversations I've had with her over the last few years. I guess it's all about what the mothers think. But 
I have found her reaction to be somewhat in line with other non-Jews, and that is, oh, I didn't know. First of all, I didn't know that there were so many different rules. I hear that almost right away. Like, gosh, there are so many rules, and and yet everyone finds a way to break a large handful of them. And uh, <laughs> um, and I didn't know there were so many different kinds of Jews, and I didn't know that they took the religion so seriously. I mean, we, we, we definitely have a bunch of daters on this show who, who have a very serious relationship with their faith, and they're trying to bring that into their future family. I've heard a lot of comments about the emphasis on family in a very positive way and how wonderful that is. And that, that's been a lot of what I've heard from non-Jews about the show. And it's, you know, at, look, at its core, it's about the universal search for love, and it's a sort of a very relatable dating show to a wider community. I just want to make sure that wider community watches it so we can actually make a season two. Amazing. Well, thank you, Aaron Sedman, for being on Unorthodox. And thank you for bringing us all these amazing shows. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Hi, it's Abby Pogrebin, back with another episode of The Minion, a roundtable discussion on tablet about the state of the American Jewish community. No experts, just people. This time, I talked with 10 participants who converted to Judaism about everything from why they chose to become Jewish to whether the larger Jewish community has made them feel equal. Here's some of what they had to say. When people ask me, I just tell them that I'm Jewish. I think that my passion for being Jewish shouldn't matter if I'm a convert or not. And I don't want anyone to judge me or make me feel like I'm less than a Jew because I converted. Right after the mikvah, I went to my synagogue with my family and my husband's family. And the rabbi took the Torah out of the ark and handed it to me and told me that everything in that was mine now. I can still feel the weight of the Torah in my arms. Judaism has given me the opportunity to see the most authentic version of myself and embraced that most authentic version, which means that as much as I have chosen Judaism, Judaism has also chosen me. Jews use Jewish geography as a way to close the gap and to find a sense of belonging. And I can't play that game. So when I tell people that I'm originally from Arizona, They'll say, oh, there's not a big Jewish population in Flagstaff, is there? And then I have to say, well, no, I wasn't Jewish when I lived in Flagstaff. So there's a way in which the expectation that everyone should be able to talk about who went to camp with whom both outs converts and uh, can feel really alienating. I've always been religious, but Jesus didn't do anything for me. And eventually it became clear that the God of the Jews was my God. I'm a Jew. If that's a problem, then that's your problem. I'm happy. I'm happy. Your conversion story is a very intimate story and not always one that is appropriate to ask about at the Oneg. If you wouldn't ask about someone's marriage, hold off on asking about their conversion. It's not that we are converts, it's that we are Jews. Check out the latest Minion at tabletmag.com slash Minion. 
Mailbox, got a letter in the mailbox, got a letter in the mailbox, mailbox. All right, to the mailbox. We have a lot of fun letters. So Josh, this first letter is about you. So I would like to ask you, it's it's addressed to me and Liel, but it is actually all about you. So would you, would you read it for us? I'd be delighted to. Hey, Liel and Stephanie, mazel tov on your new edition. I think you misjudged how big of a hint you were giving when you played the clip of the new co-host chanting his Parsha. For those of us who are fans of Joshua Molina and have freakishly random memories, it was a dead giveaway. I'm super excited since I love him and look forward to hearing him on the Jew crew. All the best, Rachel. How could my... (laughs) Rachel heard a highly auto-tuned version of you chanting like 32 seconds from Parsha Dvaera and sat there in her car being like, Parsha Dvaera, that can only mean one man. So am I to (laughs) deduce that Rachel was at my bar mitzvah? (laughs) Or I guess I've talked extensively about my Parsha being Dvaera. Uh, elsewhere, I, I don't know. I'm completely. I'm completely on, on scandal. Uh, I think Rachel probably has like a little, you know, Josh and Melina shrine in the basement with like <laughs> co- copies of uh, I don't know your I, high I school d- plays. I and- do think it's not crazy that someone listening was at your bar mitzvah. Like, no, so entirely I, possible. Yeah, so I would like for people to write in and actually like, did you guys go to high school together? Do you, do you play little league? Like, let's get some early Joshua Molina memories. Scarsdale uh, represent right. New Rochelle. New Rochelle. New Rochelle. Excellent. Even better. All right. I'll take our next note. Hi there. I love the podcast. I grew up Catholic, but married a lovely Jewish boy, grandson of a conservative rabbi. I converted five years ago and since then have been making it my mission to learn as much as I can about Judaism and Jewish culture. You and me both. The podcast has been a huge help with this. So thank you. I wanted to share our experience with a chuppah at our wedding. Josh, this is before your time, but I did talk about whether the chuppah had like jumped the shark of from just being Jewish to being something that everyone does for a highly Instagrammable wedding. Okay, so this letter writer is saying, we got married in Las Vegas. No, we didn't elope. It was a really lovely wedding with most of our family and friends. We wanted to combine both of our religious upbringings in the wedding, and the chuppah was a must-have. My husband decided it was a non-negotiable, and I was largely in favor of this. This all changed when we inquired about how much it would be to have a chuppah. It was going to be thousands of dollars. Leave it to my husband to decide that the chuppah he was so set on having was way too expensive for his taste and refused to pay for it. Years later, I still wish we had sprung for the chuppah, but my husband has no regrets about his decision. Thanks again for your wonderful show, Megan. Okay, this is insane that this is like, first of all, speaking of playing into stereotypes, your your big Jewish husband didn't want to spring <laughs> for the expensive thing. <laughs> I also don't understand why they didn't look into more reasonable chuppah options. <laughs> A chuppah need not be particularly expensive. It could be a tallest. Mine was. And as, what as are the, was mine. the requirements are literally like open on all sides and you mm-hmm. can see the sky through? Or is that a, is that a, a sukkah? <laughs> could you put a hop on an elephant? If you you could, and if you got married in sukkahs, you would really, you would hit a okay, bunch so wait, of mitzvahs so together. open on all sides, closed top? Or could have called matter? schleppers and had a tallest <laughs> and a reasonable chuppah in, in minutes. Yeah, I mean, I think this is part of sort of like the wedding industrial complex where like I had an insane chuppah and you could barely see in because there was like so much happening. But it actually, as you're saying, it could just be like four sticks yeah. and a tallis. Which is it. why we're proud to announce it for four ninety nine. <laughs> you can have the unorthodox official. And it actually comes yeah, with each could. of us holding one of one I was of them. about to ask that. Is that a kosher chuppah? Can it be held by human beings? Yeah. Yes. Hold on. I've yeah. seen that. 
let's get a fourth and offer that service. I think we can monetize this. I think it's, and it's most like Hamish, like there's some, yeah. like it's, it's like, this is our community. It's beautiful. I'm sorry you didn't have a chuppah. I think you can maybe redo it. Like just hold something above your head and like, I don't know, make it happen, Megan. I want, I want this for you. Yeah. One more letter this week. This one came in response to our conversion episode last week. And the letter writer, who out of a sense of deep magnanimity, we will withhold the... If you want her name, DM me. <laughs> Say something <laughs> letter, nice the and I'll tell you anything. <laughs> uh, but, but this letter writer took umbrage with our discussion of conversion and interfaith relationships. And, and we will read her letter hence. I think it's tragic to the whole flavor and psychology of Jewish culture and practice. I didn't date Jewish guys growing up, but I was insistent on marrying one. And I did. Together, we share a unique Jewish experience, perspective, and sense of humor. My friends who are converts don't have it. They go to shul. They learn to read Torah. Some do. But somehow they just don't have that unique Jewish essence. They definitely don't get our love of Israel. Israel is just a country to them. Uh, right, like all American Jews who definitely super freaking love Israel. They don't get our deep feelings for Israel, and most of their Jewish spouses don't care about Israel or really anything Jewish, which is why they didn't marry someone born and raised Jewish. Most didn't care if they had Jewish children or if their spouse didn't convert. With people like Karen McGinnity who drool over intermarriages and even encourage them, very soon Judaism will fade and become a distant memory. Well, anonymous letter writer, I will spare you and the rest of our listeners my true feeling at your suggestion that Jews by choice, Jews who converted to Judaism, aren't real Jews because they somehow don't get Jewish jokes or didn't grow up Jewish or don't have Jewish blood, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I will just counter your vast and shocking ignorance, uh, mean-spirited, and may I say, complete fucking lack of a Jewish soul by reminding everyone that this week we celebrate Shavuot and read the book of Ruth, the story of an amazing woman uh, who became a Jew by choice and not only had Jewish experience, but shaped the fucking Jewish experience by giving us King David. So, letter writer, maybe you want to read the book of Ruth a little more carefully this Shavuot and educate yourself. My favorite thing is the assumptions in this email um, really run contrary to like all... And I know I was eschewing science earlier, but like there are studies that say like Jews don't go to shul, like Jews are not right. reading Torah. They feel very disconnected from Israel. Like it's so funny that this this letter sort of imbues people who are born Jewish with just like all of these things that actually like we're seeing more and more. I'm not born out by the data. Us real Jews Let's love go to Israel. The science. Right. <laughs> and it also literally runs contrary to Torah, who tells us that once someone becomes a Jew, you're never again allowed to tell them, oh, you're somehow less than, or even remind them of their conversion Okay, process. but I love the idea that there's a bunch of just like unfunny converts running around that this person's right. really worried about. <laughs> and, 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 this, and this person's funny, as, as their email clearly Hilarious. suggests. Hilarious. Right. By the way, this funny person, here, she is kind of hilarious because like, I didn't date any Jewish guys, but I was insistent on marrying one. Right, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> to this person, basically, it's just like some, Judaism is just some weird club that you were born into, but I can never escape. Apparently, it's what very, a, very Hotel sad. California. For <laughs> yeah. But I do think that, you know, the, the reason I think it's it's useful to surface this letter is I, th I think that maybe I, I worry that this is sort of like a, a broader opinion that people share. And I, and I sort of hope that we can, in our small way with these episodes, dispel that and say, like, first of all, no, like, 
we need people excited about being Jewish. Like we, the numbers, we don't have those numbers of people so excited to to be Jewish, to do Jewish, that when someone actually like wants to do it, like wants to take this all on, I think we should be welcoming them more than ever. But look, and and there's there's a point to be made that if you move from any one cultural milieu to another cultural milieu, yeah, there are a bunch of experiences and, and codes that you need to learn. For example, when I became more observant and started davening at a Hasidic shtibel, and saying uh, sentences even, like even that. Even saying sentences like, because <laughs> it's I was like, okay, I'm walking in here. Hi, you know, long-time listener, first-time davener. Uh, fuck do I do now? Like, what is this, like, half the things kind of, you know, I needed catch-up. I was not born into the into the customs. But that is such an amazingly joyous process of of learning, of growing, of of, you know, becoming. It's not something that you say like, oh man, you are not born to the shtiebel so you can ever become a shtiebler. It's I, so stupid. I also think that like we Ashkenazi Jews, at least we need some more hail. Like we need intermarriage to be less, what is it, endogamous? Is that what? Like we need, our stomachs need it. Like exactly. we, we see- For the love like, of God. Not yes. our souls, but our guts. We need to sort of like figure <laughs> this out. And I think that like we should be welcoming. It's also, as I think you- said earlier, antithetical to all Jewish thought on the subject, Correct. That to consider converts they rather than us. Mm-hmm. And, and once again, as we said, as we said in the conversion episode, we are all metaphorically and literally converts because every year we have to convert anew in, in Passover by taking on this mitzvah of the Korban Pesach, of the Passover sacrifice. Once in a lifetime for Jewish men, we convert by entering the, the covenant with, with the bris. And just, you know, spiritually speaking, we convert every day by choosing this, because really, <laughs> who would want to choose this unless you're really into it? Uh, and so really, it's just what, what, a, what a historical, sociological, emotional, intellectual, moral, ethical, religious failure on behalf of this woman. Uh, I'm very sorry for you. You don't have to listen to the show. You're clearly not getting much from us. But thanks for writing in. Yeah. (laughs) And we welcome letters from all of our listeners, um, the positive, the negative. We'll be like Joshua. We'll read them all. Uh, We might not air them all, but we'll get to as many as we can. You can send us emails and voice memos at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or leave us a message on our listener line, 914-570-4869. My first Gentile of the Week is my dear friend Aaron Neal, who plays Ernst, my character's brother-in-law in Leopoldstadt. He's also my dressing roommate in a very small dressing room, so I'm glad that we get along well. He's a wonderful actor and a lovely human being. There isn't a single performance where we don't discuss how lucky we are to be in the play and how grateful he is for his life. He's got a Yiddish cup, I think, but we'll see what he thinks. You may know Aaron's work from Paddington 2, which I'm embarrassed to say I have yet to see, but I understand it's one of the great cinematic feats of all time. People love that movie. It's the godfather, too, of bear-centric films. That's right. You've seen him on Peaky Blinders. He was in uh, Landscapers on HBO. And uh, as I mentioned, he's in the Tom Sopper play with me on Broadway, as older Jews like to say. Aaron Neal, welcome to Unorthodox. Thank you very much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. So first of all, obviously the most important question. What is it like having Mr. Joshua Molina 
Tell, tell us <laughs> all about it. He's awful. He's a diva. Why is there cheese in my sandwich? It's all this. No. Um, it's, uh, it's one of the great experiences of it being in the theater is I can't think of anything like it to have a, a roommate. It's almost like the most glorious summer camp. So you get to know people in a way that you wouldn't normally. You meet someone at a party, you go for dinner with them here and there. But the experience you have of doing a play eight times a week you know, seeing the same person again and again, it develops a kind of friendship that I don't think you can develop anywhere else. Some of my closest friends are people I've shared dressing rooms with. I think you're going to say Jews. <laughs> when you say dressing room, us uninitiated. Oh, right. Yes. We're, we're imagining like, Lamb. you know, like a huge room right. with I was imagining and, that too. But yeah, right? no. <laughs> would you say it's a half or a third of the size of the small room we're in now? I Actually, would say it's, it's small, probably but... about a half the size of the small room we're in now. Theatres are built to be glamorous at the front and tiny little Warrens behind. So there's costumes. Much like me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what would you say? It's kind of like a dorm room feel to it. Absolutely. I think even among theatres, which are not known for great backstage spaces, the Long Acre is, is a little schwach, Especially, as my people say. It right. it's, yeah. uh, we have a very large cast, 30 plus actors, and uh, not a lot of space to put them in. What happens behind the scenes? Like, when do you get there? What goes on? Do you do like warm ups? Like, is it, do you stop talking at a certain point to each other? Every actor has their own little ritual to do. And it's one of the kind of fun things of doing theater is some people are chatty, some people are quiet, some people warm up on the stage. The two of us have to get there for about six o'clock for a seven o'clock show. You tend to get there, what, quarter to six, ten to six? Yeah, yeah. They paint my beard brown so I look younger because I'm supposed to be in my 40s uh, in 1899. Uh, and then I uh, stare at my phone for a little while, usually chat with you. Topics generally include how lucky we are to be in the play, always, every how night. great the play is. Yep. So tell us about Leopold Shaw for someone who knows it's on Broadway, has yep. heard the name, doesn't really know what, what's we'll going on. Will join us on June 22nd yes. for a very special performance. Yes, ah, exactly. Yes. It is a play about a Jewish family in Vienna that starts in 1899 and moves through to 1955. You follow the family through time periods, which is a surprisingly rare experience in theater that you get to follow characters who age. Tom describes it as a play in which a great tragedy happens rather than a Holocaust play. So there is a, obviously, there's the background of how this family that were incredibly assimilated on top of society, led by Josh's character, Hermann Mertz, were really right there in the center of Vienna and what happened to them going into 1955. But the play, I just feel like I've never had such a strong experience of family while doing a play. And the audience feel part of the family when they watch it to the degree that you don't really know who's related to who, but you see this swathe of family. And it carries all these gorgeous Stoppardian themes of memory, history, the past, what it means to be an individual in time, which is what another of his themes was in The Coast of Utopia. You know, they're just, they're just people. They're people who love and love the wrong people and have affairs and make mistakes, but they're doing it against the backcloth of one of the most tempestuous periods in European history. And as much as anything else, it's, it's, it's moving. Our producer, Sonia Friedman, the first time the, one of the scenes, the later scenes, the lights went up on the stage and she saw all these characters in their aging wig and makeup for the first time. She just burst into tears and she said, it's just really moving to see you having lived a life and got older. How do you, how do you disappear into a character, especially a complicated character like yours? I think you just read it and read it and read it again. Something with Stoppard is that he just, the lines tell you how to say them. 
we talk a lot about Aaron Sorkin, who Josh has worked a lot with. They're similar lines where character is rhythm. So you sort of, if you sit with it for long enough, it will tell you how to do it. I always say the audience are not interested in what I think about this character or this period. They've got Tom writing and he's better than me. And I just have to carry his sense of ideas and work to the stage. And you've been embodying this character for a long time. You 450 shows, three and a half uh, years, wow. which is um, with a pandemic in between. But one of the things that's most interesting to me is uh, just being able to do something over a long time, keep it fresh. I've been so lucky because the central relationship in the play that I go through is with the character that Josh plays, Herman. And all four actors who played that part have been terrific and different and brought a but different But if you had to rank to us? <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. And you change subtly with each person. So you get this kind of weird drama school where in come in four brilliant actors who are utterly accomplished in their own way and you get to sort of play tennis with them. It is kind of fun. The first time I saw it, I'm going to be totally honest, I I was kind of dreading this. I mean, I'm a yeah. really big Stoppard fan, but it's like, I'm going to go to this thing not only is it going to be depressing, but I'm going to have to sit there for whatever, two, three hours, knowing that this like knock on the right. door at some point is going to come and I'm going to be like, oh, great. I walked straight. I mean, this is one thing I discovered about Broadway. You could, For $30, you could buy one of those sippy cups filled with like a double, triple shot of vodka. I did that, yeah, you know, yeah. sat down be like, okay, please just pass uneventfully. <laughs> please yeah, just yeah. be over with. And it was like amazingly moving because at some point you're like, yeah, well, this is happening. But that's not what you're watching for. You're watching for these interactions, these these relationships, these intricacies. Right. It's it's really kind of something. It's that old trick of to show the loss, you show the life. Right. Uh, there are no blue striped pajamas in this play. There's no scene set in Auschwitz. It's not except that Josh play. in the dressing room. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. Exactly. You can make that joke. I can't. <laughs> but, uh, and it's also, I think, um, Tom is unafraid of jokes in his Holocaust play, and not just jokes like what he would consider Jewish jokes, like uh, dick jokes, foreskin jokes. It's like there's huge amounts of laughter in the play because it's a, you know, it's a family of life. Nobody wants to be hit over the head with a message or lectured or hectored. And I don't think it's about that, really. I think it's about having the experience of being part of a family, which is interestingly, you know, he missed that. He left, he got out, he was there in England with his stepfather and his mother. So it's almost him writing, it's not literally his family, but it's almost him writing the experience of growing up in a large family that he never had. So you come to this moral reckoning, to this deeply Jewish mm. show from, from a different faith tradition. Yeah, yeah. Tell us about it. Well, I, I was born and raised Muslim, and I didn't find a home there, if I'm honest. It, there was My father was an immigrant from India, and very, very much like Herman Mertz, there was a degree of conflict in him. Part of him really believed in assimilation. That's why my name is Aaron. I'm Aaron Neal. My full name is Aaron Neal Hussein. I dropped the Hussein for acting. But Aaron and Neal are, I am in England and will give my kid an English name, names. Uh, he tried to be a Rotarian, a Freemason. He was all about the integration. But at the same time, absolutely petrified that he would lose his child to a British culture. So it was quite controlling and you must go to the mosque and you will have no female friends and you will be at home and study. And it was a, a sort of quite a dark childhood. Now I can see how he meant well. But there was Did a you bristle of, at that from the get-go? Um, it's really hard to know because at that age, you don't know who you are and who you're not. And I was, you know, you're trying to work out your identity. And my dad was sending me to Muslim youth camps where 
the ideology was vicious and it was it, and it was anti-Semitic. You know, there was an anti-Semitic streak to that. But in the world of contradictions, all of my dad's friends were Jewish. Those communities really clung together in Manchester. And so I really turned my back on all aspects of faith until I had a, a bad drinking problem when I was young and I found recovery and, and you know, gave up alcohol. And part of the sort of shtick of doing that is you have to start developing a relationship with something greater than yourself. And I was like, well, it ain't going to be the Muslim stuff. And doors started to open in the way that they do when you do that kind of thing. And I started finding my way back to, I think there's something, there's something about your lineage, heritage, and the stuff that is in you that is, and that's why I'm really moved by Judaism and watching the rituals over the year is that it's not an ideology that you pick like a political ideology. There's blood that runs within you. There is a sort of tribal aspect to this. So I found my home back in mystical Islam, Sufism, mystical Hinduism, kind of the general mystical religions. I didn't really want a guy with a beard pointing a finger at me and shouting. That wasn't really my thing. It was where I found peace. So the spiritual texts of the world, the Bhagavad Gita, the Ramayana, I'm always fascinated by people of faith, particularly modern people of faith. I think there's a, there's a sort of reactionary fundamentalist approach to faith that I know well from my childhood and don't jive with and I'm not interested with. But I'm always fascinated by people who take something that is traditionally or can be viewed as harsh or fundamentalist or even misogynistic and grapple with it and say, well, for better or for worse, this is my home, which I think, you know, is what it's why it's so interesting talking to Josh, is that this is my home. This is, I must make this work for me. We were talking about this quote the other day, which my friend who became a Buddhist and argued with his mother all the time says, and I really love this. He says, when I talk to my mother about Buddhism, she's really angry with me. But when I am the Buddha, she loves me. <laughs> and I really, I, I like the idea of wearing something lightly that is a moral code for you that guides you and pushes you forward and it's not about what you say but it's about who you are is your father still around no he died about 15 years ago i had to sort of come out to him as secular for a long time what was strange was he was very disappointed that i didn't identify as muslim anymore because in his eyes i'm going to hell that's how that worked but then when i started talking to him about god and as i was finding my relationship to it through recovery and other things he was really intrigued and moved. And at one point, about three months before he died, he said, I wish I had the relationship with God that you have, which is an incredible thing to hear from your father. I think from his view, there's either strict Muslim or you're some kind of, you know, playboy who just, right. you know, screws around and spends all the money. There's no moral code outside of it. It always kind of surprised me that more actors aren't religious, because if you think about it, it's about interacting with text. It's about ritual and observance and performance that you don't always understand, written by an author that most cases you don't get to meet. Well said. Unless, you know, unless you yeah. make some interesting choices. I don't know. This seems to be something very ritualistic about this whole experience. Does that make any sense to you? Yeah. The interpretation of text is really interesting. Yeah. I know what you it's mean. It's like performance. Because like I feel, especially in faith traditions like Islam and Judaism, in which so much of it is literally performance like yeah. i go to synagogue every morning and i pray to god which is a ridiculous experience if you think about this yeah. i'm standing here like i'm gonna read some lines that i do or don't understand because i believe that that's what you want and there are other people there and i'm yeah i'm gonna do it 
what am I supposed to feel? How am I supposed to make others feel? How's what is it supposed to unlock? I don't know. It's a I, thing that we do. It's a I love the way you talk about that. I mean, I you know, I had my vehement phase of screw all this. It's terrible. Right. I'm going to be an atheist, a political left wing atheist, and you know, because of the absurdity of the prayer and the fact that we're speaking Arabic, we don't understand, and we're going through these motions and these ritual stuff. And then as I was told, you know, as a way to get sober from alcohol, you kind of have to pray. That's just one of the things you've got to do. And I started to do it, and I started, I was like, this is ridiculous. There's no big guy in the sky. And God is not some cosmic bellboy who decides who to bestow his grace on, depending on who prays the most. That's not my view at all. But I read this quote that I really, really loved, which was by Kierkegaard. And he said, the purpose of prayer is not to influence God, but to change the one who prays. And I really, really like that. I don't pray with any expectation of outcome. I pray with a sense that something else can take some of the weight of what I'm going through and I don't have to do it. You have been in one, one other piece of work that is one of my absolute all-time favorite films. And I'm talking, uh, of course- Billy Madison. About, about, <laughs> about Paddington 2. Ah, we did not expect it to have this level of, I mean, it's loved to an almost, it's a really humbling degree. What was I saying? It's the, it's the most well-reviewed film on Rotten Tomatoes <laughs> for, a, for a while with Citizen Kane second. Right. Now that's really <laughs> absurd. But it is the thing that has brought me most joy in my career. My friends for a long time, when their children were old enough to watch Paddington 2, they would send me a reaction of their sort of two-and-a-half-year-old <laughs> gurgling at watching and going, Alan, Alan. And I, I just, I can't, you know, of all the films to be involved in, that's just one of the most, it, the reactions are gorgeous to it. And, you know, I love it as well. I can't watch it without crying, which is faintly embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the um, privileges of being on the universe's leading Jewish podcast is that you get to ask this accredited panel of Jewish experts any question you ever had about really, anything I'll Jewish. I'll tell you what I'm really interested in with anyone who is modern and liberal and working with faith is that what aspects of your religion do you find hardest to reconcile? It's a difficult one. I mean, I can go first because I've always found, and uh, God, if this is a podcast going public, I've got to watch my uh, fatwa potential. But I've always found difficulties in the Quran's treatment of women, for example. But I always view the Quran now, I view it through the lens of, I don't necessarily think it's um, holy writ for all time, but I find it the most moving of social revolutionary texts from the seventh century. So there's so many things like, you know, the four wives thing, which is now used for Arab sheikhs to justify marrying a load of people. At the time, it was a wartime footing, and it was the prophet going, listen, if three of your buddies get killed in war, you take on their families. You don't let those women and children starve. And hence the four wives. So I, I sort of love the, the wartime social aspects of that religion, but I do find some bits of it hard to stick with. I think it's an amazing question. I agree. I think some of the gender stuff in particularly more observant, more orthodox Judaism does rub me the wrong way. I think what I've been trying to do is, you know, certain synagogues, there's separate seating, men and women, separate dancing at a wedding. There's really no merging of the two sides. And I look at that and I say, how could anyone be okay with that? And so my journey has sort of been to not judge the people who do that, right? To try to understand that they have an understanding where this actually does make sense to them. And so the nice thing about Judaism is that there has always been this, this room for grappling, right? Rabbis have been fighting about everything forever. And so it's not a new... And ruling on yeah. issues and And so it's not a new thing. So I think there is space within Judaism to question those things and to figure out how we deal with it. But I think 
I don't want to tell someone that you are not an enlightened person because you do X, Y, or Z and sort of trying to understand what about their understanding of all of this makes them want to be do all this stuff. I'm profoundly moved by people who grapple with that from inside the tent rather than leaving. One of my friends in New York is a queer Jewish trans man and goes to shul, a very welcoming liberal shul in uh, New York. And I find that I find that deeply moving. You know, he's learning Yiddish over the summer and trying to find a home in the faith when you're part of a group that is traditionally ostracized is is moving to me. There's Leviticus has some <laughs> <laughs> there's some there's some issues there. Prohibition Pretty against homosexual activity. The entire book is, of Leviticus. Is, yeah, <laughs> it's uh, it's problematic. My mother had a babysitter who used to read to her and would occasionally say, uh, big word, move on. And <laughs> I, I sometimes feel <laughs> I feel an inclination to take a big word, move on <laughs> approach to uh, certain parts of the Torah. But I, again, I am buoyed by the fact that I'm a part of a religion that actually doesn't just move on and actually reinterprets and discusses. To me, the difficulty is more personal and, and more emotional because we're commanded in Judaism to experience two emotions at the same time. Mm. One is Ahavas Hashem, which is love of God. That I get. That feels great. But then there's the other part, which is Yiras Hashem, fear of God. Mm. Uh, and Solomon says in the book of Proverbs, like, you know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. Because mm. you don't really believe in, in some smiting, right? In mm. some like old school, real wrath of God stuff. You're not getting the sort of cosmological, you know, intricacy of, of this entire thing. And to feel this fear is difficult for a modern person. And to then bring it together with the love bit is doubly difficult. Mm. And I find myself going through this, you know, almost like in, in a good meditation practice, I find myself going through fluctuating right. stages like, oh, I'm feeling really kind of fearful and I'm moving away because I'm closing up and now I'm feeling really loving. But now am I getting too familiar? Right. I need to dive down. It's a really interesting dynamic and it's not an easy one. I love that because, you know, I I always feel like there's no certainty in religion. And, you know, I I always think of that thing at the top of the Sistine Chapel where Adam's hand reaches, fingers reaches for God, but the gap is where everything is. So you, you, you have a sense that there's something out there that you're trying to understand. And the grappling with... With, as you say, I'm moving here, I'm moving there. It's like, you'll never, there'll never be a moment where you sat across a table and you know it all. I mean, certainly not in this life. But that feeling of the gap between where you are and where God is, is where all faith happens. This was amazing. Thank you very much. So I'm coming to the show tonight, but all of our listeners, we're inviting, right. we're doing a special event, a special night at Leopoldstadt, June 22nd. Everyone can come see Joshua and can come see Aaron and we'll be there. And then after the show, Liel and I are actually getting up on stage and we'll be, we'll be <laughs> grilling bring, Joshua. To bring the level down. <laughs> yeah, to yeah. bring the, the density <laughs> level. Degrees. Um, and our listeners can go to bit.ly slash Broadway to get their tickets and to just see all of this on stage. That will be a special night. I'm really really looking forward to it. Aaron, thank you for... Thank you so much for having me. Honestly, it's an honor. I really feel uh, grateful that you had me on. Time for some Mazel Tovs. 
My mazel tov is to Adele and Elia Cohen, who just celebrated their second and fourth birthdays with honestly like a very, very, very fun birthday party. And while I was there, I got to see their grandparents, who are our Scottsdale Super J Crew members, the Storches. And it was a lot of fun and great to see them. And thanks for being such dedicated listeners to the show. We also want to offer a refuah shlema, a get well soon, to Rabbi Eric Wisnia and Eva Bender. I have two mazalos. First of all, to this year, Tablet Magazine, which this week is featuring our amazing package, as we say in the biz, from our visit to no other than the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Some of us, unfortunately not any of us in this room right now, but some of us intrepid reporters went to Riyadh and elsewhere and came back with like amazing, amazing reporting from this incredible place. So everyone should go to tabletmag.com and read it. But I want to keep on theme and give one big, big mazel tov to Noah Kirel, Israel's representative to the Eurovision. Not so much for her incredible accomplishment, number three. Yeah, she came in third. It's great. Fantastic. But for what happened after the Eurovision, because here she is and she's flying back home to Israel. And because everyone in Israel is very passionate about the Eurovision, every single screen on the El Al flight said, Mazal Tov, Noah. So this man sitting next to her, who happens to be a really big rabbi named Tzvi Rimon, turns to her and says, excuse me, um, I'm a little bit confused. The screen in front of me says, Mazal Tov, Noah. Do you happen to know who Noah is? And she says, yeah, I'm Noah, which is literally like sitting next to like, you know, Madonna. Be like, do you happen to know who Madonna is? And he says, oh, okay, Noah, well, why is everyone wishing you Mazal Tov? And she says, well, because I just came in third at the Eurovision Song Contest and I'm this huge pop star. And he says, that's really nice. I'm, I'm, I'm a rabbi. And she says, oh my God, that is so incredible. And then she starts telling him that she made everyone in the Israeli Eurovision delegation keep off the phone on Shabbat and that they all said prayers. And he said, well, if you ever have any halachic questions, here's my number, please call me. And they take this adorable selfie together. And it's the most only in Israel story that has ever only in Israel. So to Noah Kirer and to Rav Tzvirimon, mazel tov to both of you for bringing Jews together. Joshua? Sure. I have a mazel tov for my friend of nearly 50 years, David Cowan. This is going back to my yeshiva days, Westchester Day School in Mamaronik, New York. He produced a beautiful documentary called Afghan Dreamers, which is about a girls' robotics team in Afghanistan, a country where currently girls 12 years and older cannot get an education. And it's a really heartbreaking and powerful documentary that David produced, and it can be found on Paramount Plus, and I urge people to watch it. That's our show for today. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Stephanie Butnick, with Liel Leibovitz and Joshua Molina. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. Our team includes Courtney Hazlett, Tanya Singer, and Jerome Rusquet, administrative support from Sam Hacker and Jordana LaRosa. You can follow Unorthodox on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and get your Unorthodox swag at tabletstudios.com. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Our logo and swag is designed by Jenny Rosbrook. Our theme music is by Golem, and our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. You can send a snail mail at P.O. Box 20079, New York, New York, 10001. Send us emails and voice memos at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or leave us a message on our listener line, 914-570-4869. Happy Shavuot, eat that cheesecake, grab that lactate, stay out of the pool, and we will see you next week. 
Shalom, friends. <laughs> <laughs>